Welcome to Meatbone Express, the filmmaking podcast. Today we're talking with filmmaker Emil Corton Wilson about his film Ruin, which is the exciting follow-up to Hail. Emil, how are you today? Really, really well, actually. Um, yeah, just really enjoying uh, finally having Ruin screened in cinemas around the country, and yeah, it's a pleasure to say hello. So Ruin is a pretty radical uh, production. Um, can you tell me about uh, how it got started and, and what it is and, and where it's shot? Absolutely. Uh, so the film's co-directed, co-produced and co-written with uh, Michael Cody, who was the producer on my first uh, uh, fictional feature film, Hail. Uh, and we basically had just premiered Hail at the Venice Film Festival and Michael uh, wanted to take a trip to Cambodia, wanted to work on, on a project there and invited me along and it was a very very open-ended amorphous invitation it was really um it might have ended up you know manifesting as a, a photo essay or a short documentary we, we really had no idea um what the project was going to um, evolve into but we landed with really as i said no script no financing um and just of you know for me i'd not been to the country before so i was really trying to make my naivety a virtue of sorts we met a wonderful uh uh, Cambodian producer Kulika Soto, who ended up really becoming our passport to um, a myriad of uh, quite amazing contacts. Uh, you know, everything from various NGOs to ex-police officers to you know um, young women who'd been trafficked as children to um, yeah, just a, a huge array of Cambodian artists and filmmakers. And she was really instrumental in providing us the framework to do the uh, very intensive five weeks of research and writing that um, led to a treatment for the film that led to an 18-day shoot in November 2011. So it was a, from landing in Cambodia to the moment we started shooting the film was about five weeks. And in many respects, that was kind of an, ex an exercise or an experiment in, um, you know, just uh, sheer momentum and, and uh, Michael, Cody and I's respective interest in um, you know, the core themes of, of trauma and I suppose how trauma resides in the body and, and the way in which language tends to or can fall down around uh, your uh, ability to uh, articulate that trauma. So what is it like diving into a project uh, without a, a completed script? Well, it's, for me, coming from a documentary background, I shot documentaries for close to 12 years before I shot my first feature-length, you know, um, drama. So in many respects, I'm uh, actually still shocked at how relaxed and easy it is compared to shooting a, a straight observational documentary film where, you know, at times it's literally uh, just a you know, one-person crew or, you know, at best a two-person crew when you're shooting a, a documentary. And the idea of having a schedule where actors show up and, uh, you know, people occasionally bring you food is such a, like, seriously, without being sounding flippant, it's, it's such a comparatively such a luxury um, that uh, I still feel uh, really quite a huge degree of, like, freedom and liberation, even though we don't have, you know, a fully scripted um, document that we're, we're working from. Um, more often than not, it's like the... The, the guts or the, you know, the, the skeleton of the, the dramatic um, function of the scene is there. It's really just the dialogue that hasn't yet been um, uh, developed. So that, that's really what we 
dialogue and then also, you know, obvious things like blocking and, and, and shot size and stuff. But in many respects also, the, the joy of working in Cambodia, we decided to shoot the, the film pretty much primarily in Khmer. Um, so obviously Michael or I don't speak Khmer. Um, so we had that to deal with as well. And that actually led to a, a very natural shedding of a lot of um, dialogue. So the, um, the film is very gestural and, and I think the two lead actors have, you know, I wouldn't imagine more than maybe like 40 lines of dialogue in the entire film. So it's a very still film, very silent film. And that was certainly informed by the fact that um, it was interesting to work with gesture and the body uh, more than with, with dialogue. So yeah, an interesting, interesting series of explorations. The film is told uh, much more visually. Is it, would you describe it as a, a non-narrative film? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's actually, in essence, a very uh, simple, simple uh, love story. It's sort of a lovers on the run, almost like a, a Bonnie and Clyde uh, uh, type romance. It just happens to be set um, in modern day Phnom Penh and, and then um, the characters move out into the jungles of Cambodia. It's, 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 I, was, I think it was described uh, early on in the um, edit as somewhat of like a Cambodian badlands. So it's, the story is, um, while it's not he you know, particularly heavy on plot, it's, it's actually a very, very simple, I mean, almost like fable-like narrative. And um, while there are like impre impressionistic flourishes throughout the film and a lot of um, you know, um, extreme slow motion and a lot of um, quite abstract imagery, it's all really in service of this very simple meditation on how love can briefly transcend um, a life of, of trauma, I suppose. This is a, a really uh, a radical uh, uh, production and it seems like a, a lot of risks are taken. Uh, what uh, went to plan and, and what didn't go to plan while you were doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there were, uh, strangely, uh, the you know, looking back on the experience, especially co-directing the film, and we also had three editors on the project. Um, I've co-directed one other film, which was, um, you know, which is an interesting experience. There was a, a, a few hiccups along the way. Um, it should have been, I think, a, a far more uh, um, complex and maybe at times taxing process. But I think because Cody and I were so adamant about uh, everything that we did being really in service of this this core thematic preoccupation with this idea of trauma um, and as it most particularly like how trauma lives in the body we were able to uh, and also because of the you know the small size of the crew um, quite often if we had differing ideas a, a, about a scene or the dramatic function of a scene rather than like juking it out in uh, in pre-production we would just decide to shoot both versions of the of the scene and work it out in the edit. Um, I mean, obviously working in, in Cambodia, there's like, and we were shooting in some, you know, fairly uh, precarious scenarios, like filming in actual brothels and filming in, um, you know, at times we had to have police escorts and, and police escorts with machine guns in certain locations. Funnily enough, not really for the local inhabitants. It was, it was mainly to do with the, the, um, the corrupt landlords who were um, actually, you know, owners of huge tracts of land, land that we were shooting on. So those kind of issues, you know, negotiating location fees at the last minute and those, you know, that the very pragmatic logistical 
um, complications due to working in a country that, yeah, is certainly uh, corrupt at times. Uh, but I think, you know, all things considered, it was sort of insanely um, smooth process. I mean, you know, at times you would, for example, we, we cast a supporting uh, character woman playing uh, the mother of Mooney, the lead character in the film, and um, you get to location to film this scene and the woman that we auditioned and decided not to cast is waiting for us and not the woman we cast and there's no time to really um, change that so you just proceed and shoot the, shoot the scene with um, this other actress. I mean, and you know, things are, lo are lost in translation quite a lot. Um, but again, because we had such a small crew, there wasn't really too much um, lost along the various kind of chains of different departments and stuff. I think the crew at its largest was around 17 people. Um, uh, so, you know, the idea of being able to fit everyone in three vans or two vans um, means that, um, you know, you can keep a pretty tight ship and, um, and it also means, you know, you can respond to things really organically. So the, you know, the, the, the wonderful, uh, one of the wonderful bonuses of working in this organic fashion is there's a beautiful fish market that um, features in the, the first uh, half of the film and that was actually discovered probably about four days before we finished shooting by a location scout. So that was written into the film um, and we found ourselves shooting there the very next day. Um, so those kind of things, being able to respond to that organically to the world around you, again coming from a documentary background, is is really kind of a godsend. I can put up with, with um, you know, certain actors not turning up to, to be able to work with that kind of fluidity, I think. Is it true that you had uh, equipment stolen during the production of the film? Yeah, that's true, actually. We did. Um, we were working with... Um, we, we met an amazing group of people at a, a NGO that was, in essence, a, a needle exchange or sort of part rehab crisis centre, drop-in centre, needle exchange for um, intravenous drug users in Phnom Penh. And we cast probably about six six people in various roles from, from that but um, yeah, we had uh, one evening we had um, the crew's cell phones were all stolen by um, a young, very adept um, ice addict um, pickpocket who managed to steal um, our cell phones on a number of occasions actually. And um, we knew that he'd done it and he'd sold our cell phones for ice or you know, methamphetamine. Um, but I don't know I'm, you know, I'm not one to get overly angry at things like that. So we. Um, we just asked him not to do it again, and um, and uh, I think we shot with him like the next day. So um, I think you know very quickly um, the people we were collaborating with realized that we were you know maybe a little more relaxed than than other film productions, certainly with things like that. Um, and it ended up leading to uh, that same guy who stole our cell phones actually like helping. Um, you know, be sort of an on-location security guard to protect us from other people who are looking to potentially steal equipment. So, yeah, th those things are, um, uh, you know, can happen anywhere, and and uh, and certainly happen in Cambodia. But I, I didn't, I never felt as though we were, you know, more unsafe or or you know any any less kind of supported than you would be working in, say, the western suburbs of Melbourne or or Sydney, I suppose. You've you've gone to Cambodia. Uh... I understand without funding and without a, a full script, it's hard enough making a film in your own country, let alone another and in another language. What what methodology got you over the line here? 
Yeah, look, I think it was really about Michael and I saying that we wanted to take what we'd learned from Hale and try to distill that and further that in terms of a methodology that was really about taking the most exhilarating parts of the filmmaking process and that involves you know several things that's about that's about working with friends with collaborators that you know know and understand um, the way that you work so we worked with uh, same some of the same uh, at least half probably the same crew as, as we worked with on Hale um, and again you know these people have all worked in documentary worked in this sort of hybrid space for want of a better term and uh, it, it, it allows you to uh, push everyone and and there's one thing that you know is, is certain when you're know, working um, in this kind of way like I don't think there was a, a day that went by that wasn't you know at least 16 hours um, I know the last week of the shoot we were sort of pushing up to around 18 20 hour days for three or four days we were shooting down in Campot to just to just to nail everything that we needed to nail but there's such a, a wonderfully uh, well more than collegiate it's a it's a it's a it's an unbelievably supportive bond in which because you don't have the usual hierarchies of a, of a film set where um, you know if you look at the credits of ruin most people have two three four sometimes five roles on the film and by working in that way it, it, it just it you know inevitably everyone becomes that much more invested in the film and you find this really wonderful um, exponentially um, uh, growing sense of commitment to the work you know and, and literally uh, to give you an example it's like you know a uh, a PA or a, um, a data angler working in the in the um, post-production side of the side of things during the film discovered an amazing location for us um, again like a week into the shoot um, because they were equally invested and knew the knew the, the themes of the work and knew that they could contribute in a really meaningful way. So that makes everyone feel very, very alive and and sensitized to being able to contribute really meaningfully. And and I love I love that. It it, lend, it lends itself to a very generous and kind of open and warm way of working. important was uh, sound uh, and sound design music score uh, to this picture I had the pleasure of working with Rob McKenzie and Sam Petty uh, sound designers and sound mixers who I'd worked with before I'd worked with Rob uh, on uh, my last two feature films and Rob and Sam are both really impeccable uh, in terms of their their craft and and both have a, a really wonderful uh, aesthetic that is predicated on this idea of uh, a certain kind of elegance coming from a, a minimalism sonically throughout a work so it was really about stripping things out of the film more than like la yeah layering things in and in terms of the, the music I um, worked again with Steve Benwell who's a composer I'd worked with on three of my, my prior films and I love to uh, gather as much uh, score as I can, or at least sketches of the the the, the type of uh, the type of I suppose unit like sonic universe we'll be employing for the film. You, 
as early as possible. So I actually had about an hour and a half of material from Steve before we actually shot that we took over with us to Cambodia that the editors had from day one of the edit. Um, and then that was then uh, augmented with a range of really beautiful source music that we licensed from a range of primarily American, like minimalist composers from the 60s and 70s. So um, film, uh, composers like Phil Niblock and Charlemagne Palestine uh, and, you know, un unbelievably potent and powerful work, but, you know, to my mind also grossly underrated and, and not really utilized or certainly not in the world of film enough. So yeah, it was a, a mixture of, uh, uh, probably about six licensed tracks and about five, uh, tracks composed, um, specifically for the, for the film by Steve Benwell. That's really interesting because, uh, sound is often thought of as an afterthought and something you will, uh, make to go with an image, but it almost sounds like you've created some images to go with uh, sounds. Yeah, absolutely. I think quite often uh, a film for me will, at its most nascent stage, have some kind of germination from a particular piece of music. Certainly ideas for shots or, or scenes um, you know, come from music probably more often than any other uh, art form for me. So, um, yeah, music is unbelievably, uh, important in the way that we work. And it's a, it's a real, uh, you know, I, I, quite often when you're working, um, with a, a sound designer, a sound mixer, you know, because obviously the score is, is, is only, you know, really substantially developed from the time at which the, the pitch is locked or the, you know, the edits completed. Um, for the sound, for the editor to be able to play with that amount of you know specificity in terms of just even you know something as simple as a scene transition or a crossfade between two music cues. Um, so by the time you get into the into the mix, we actually um, mix the film unbelievably quickly. Like um, it, it's it's it doesn't quite looking back, it doesn't actually quite make sense how fast we. I think the mix was done in like three days. I think, which for a feature film is is really, really, really fast. But that's, that's really because we, you know, we were using so much music in the edit that we knew we'd be able to, you know, A, afford or B, had been composed for us specifically. By the time you get to the mix, it's really about, you know, Robin Sam's, um, you know, really joyous job is, is really about refining and, 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 and finding, you know, new levels of sophistication for what is, you know, pretty much already there, schematically speaking, I suppose. This is a highly anticipated film. Uh, Hail is very popular with cinephiles in Australia. And, uh, yeah, your work is sort of very highly regarded. And it's also done really well overseas, winning a, a prize at Venice. Um, can you tell me why you're self-distributing the film? Um, it's, it's, it's really lovely over the last 10 or so years to, to see, I, uh, you know, like a, a slowly growing base of people around the country who are aware of our work. That's always really humbling and, and, and very, very inspiring to attend screenings where, you know, people have, you know, followed what we've done since, I suppose, Barsity is probably the, or even sometimes going back all the way to Chasing Buddha, like, you know, 20 years ago. But, um, in terms of the release of, of Ruin, like Barsity, uh, feature doc that I made and which was released about seven years ago, that was actually self-distributed 
um, by myself and Philippa Campy through Palace Cinemas. Then Hale was, while it was a madman, is a madman title, um, I handled uh, two cities of the, you know, distribution in two cities and Madman handled two cities. So it was kind of a split distribution deal. On, on Ruin, Madman have uh, all other rights to the film for Australia and New Zealand. And um, because for a film like this, it was looking you know, a little bit difficult in terms of leveraging a theatrical, a traditional theatrical release, um, we managed to uh, get the rights, the theatrical rights back from Madman. Um, and that just took a little bit of time and, and negotiating. And so hence um, the decision for us to, yeah, self-distribute the film in Adelaide, uh, Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne and um, with other cities to follow. So the other thing too that's been really exciting about this is I think recognising that people need and want more from their cinema experience uh, and you know taking a leaf out of the books of places such as Cine Family or Alamo Draft House in the United States and so hence our decision to where possible have uh, each screening be like an event screening of sorts with a Q&A or uh, as an example in Brisbane at Goma we're showing a a 45-minute re-edit of the film with a live score composed by Oren Ambachi, featuring a lot of material not seen in the film. And and I think increasingly, uh, you know, it's not dissimilar to the Cinema Plus um, uh, endeavour that Rob Connolly's put together. Uh, I think it's actually it's actually a good thing to put the onus on the filmmakers to try to pro provide more, I suppose, creative assets for, for audiences to respond to, as, as well as the film itself. Does that give you more uh, control as a filmmaker uh, when you're sort of involved in the exhibition process? Look, I think with a film of this scale, you tend to be pretty hands-on whether you're working with a distributor or not, realistically. Like you're always, I suppose, going to want to um, make sure that your baby doesn't drown as it takes its first steps into um, a very cold and dark ocean. Um, but I think... Uh, yeah, look, it does. It does give you more control. I think um, I always love collaborating at this end of the street as well, though. So I do love working with distributors. It's it's always a joy um, to have a new set of eyes on your work and and uh, you know to see it interpreted in terms of how certain audiences could respond to certain elements of the film. So, um, but you know, having the freedom this time around to do things like this live score performance at, um, at uh, Goma with Oren is, I mean, that that's really exciting. That's, that's, that is a, you know, that's really new terrain for me. So that kind of thing. Yeah, certainly, you know, that wouldn't be feasible working with a traditional distributor. We had a conference uh, recently in Adelaide called the Screenmakers Conference. And it seems that the thesis uh, was about finding what the audience wants and sort of back engineering your project from that, which to me, doesn't really seem like personal filmmaking. How would you describe sort of personal filmmaking uh, in Australia um, and sort of in this age? What challenges are there and, and what advice would you give to people that really want to be following their hearts, uh, even though they may be advised to be trying to make something a um, theoretical audience wants? Yeah, look, I would say uh, just make more work. I would say make more varied work. I would say, um, you know, where possible compartmentalize your creative output. So you are making absolutely uncompromising personal films that are, you know, reverse engineered, I suppose, more specifically, um, around, uh, you know, what makes that film able to be 
shot. So, you know, be that location or cast or, um, you know, the, the, the pragmatic um, uh, logistical uh, concerns that just allow you to, to get the film made, I suppose. So, um, I personally speaking, I have always got upwards of half a dozen projects on the boil, you know, ranging from video installations to feature docs to, you know, um, executive producer on a couple of um, emerging filmmakers' first features. I think that's really the main key is, is keeping yourself uh, very nimble and very, very um, across a range of types of work. Um, but, you know, I think also, you know, there's, there's really, really no excuse not to be making uh, your own personal cinema um, I mean, now more than ever. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a conversation that has been really pertinent for probably 20 years since the advent, advent of digital video, but it's in, increasingly, uh, you know, the case. So while I think, you know, both state and federal funding bodies could absolutely, and I would, you know, be the first person to champion them funding more low-budget films and uh, providing a voice to to a wider range of emerging filmmakers. By the same token, there's no benefit in waiting around for that money to come. And I think filmmakers need to just uh, start making work. And you know, the more prolific and the more um, uncompromising you can be in that, I think the the quicker you find your voice, and um, the I think it also helps forge you know, much stronger filmmaking communities ultimately because people are then forced to help one another. So, yeah, I th that kind of ecosystem is is, is really key. And, and while I'm an eternal optimist, I do feel as though we could be certainly doing a lot more in Australia. I would like to see, like, a lot more films being made here each year. Could you expand on uh, making films without funding? Uh, a lot of people go to film school and they're taught an industrial approach. Uh, but once they get out of film school, uh, there isn't the funding there that there once was. Uh, c can you kind of describe how to cross that threshold and maybe some very simple pointers on how you really can make films for basically nothing? Yeah, look, um, we shot Hail on 16 mil and we got to Cambodia. I think uh, between between us, Michael and I had probably about $8,000 that we'd managed to borrow. So we had a budget of around eight grand. Um, we then met Kulika Soto, our Cambodian producer, and she provided us with probably around 10 grand of in-kind support. So that was came in the form of, you know, a month worth of van hire, translators, uh, and a couple other things. Very, 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 very minimal. So as a result, we had to work out how we were going to make a film and while we wanted to shoot on film at that time we realized that we had to shoot uh, on five days which I was at the time very dubious about um, but was quickly convinced by Ari Wegner our cinematographer and we we basically wrote the film to the strengths of the format we were shooting on so the film was set primarily at night and certainly you know working in 5d um, uh, you know fluorescent light and low light, it's it's a, a sort of a, a more forgiving kind of environment in which to use that camera. So, um, and then we, we literally called um, about six of our friends and said, we're making a film in Cambodia. Um, 
there's literally no money. We don't really know what we're doing, but come along for three weeks and see what happens. Um, we were sent, we were subsequently able to raise money for that film and, and pay everyone, but that was well after the fact. So I think, uh, you know, but through, through that process, we were able to get enough material in the can to then show funding bodies, to then show people that, okay, these cast are amazing and this is an amazing world and, and uh, you know, the story needs a little bit of development, but there's, there's seeds there that are worth supporting. So, um, you know, I think, again, it comes down to you have to take that initial risk to just start shooting. I think, you know, I've seen so many filmmakers just really uh, flounder in this development space for years and years and years. And it's just so important to start uh, for your own sake, let, you know, let alone this, you know, the, the necessity of people needing to see, you know, images from your story to then excite them enough to potentially invest. But just to keep you sane, it's, it's so important to be making work, you know. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's really no excuse not to um, at all anymore. I, I just want to see more Australian films from more Australian filmmakers. The way you describe it seems as simple as a painter should paint, a filmmaker should be making films. Uh, it, it, like, you've you just got to stay active and you describe the... Uh, people sort of flandering, waiting for answers, waiting for for things. It seems like what you've done is take a risk, but there's this phenomena where people, as soon as they see you take a risk, go, I want to be on board, and they seem sort of attracted an energy. Yeah, look, a a absolutely. I mean, it, it certainly helps that, that, you know, I've made a few films before and people know, you know, my previous work, but having said that, the same principles were absolutely at play 15 years ago when I was uh, deciding to shoot my first documentary in the United States and I borrowed $3,000 and a camera and convinced a production company at age 18 to go and shoot what became Chasing Buddha with a high school friend of mine. You know, I mean, that, that uh, ability to infect and, you know, um, find, you know, instill a certain kind of inspiration in, in your collaborators, I think is, is, uh, you know, if you, it, it really should be present. And if it's not, maybe you're not necessarily telling the right story because you're not excited enough about it. Before we go into the, the screenings, which are happening across Australia, could you tell me about some of your, uh, filmmaking and artistic heroes in Australia and the world? Absolutely. Um, I am a huge, huge fan of Rolf Tahir. I think his ability to uh, just consistently create such high-caliber personal and really very alive work is, is you know, makes him you know, easily one of the most interesting filmmakers in the country. I also absolutely adore the films of James Clayton, who is... Um, a Melbourne filmmaker, he's made five uh, feature-length films. He merges a, a really remarkable, very potent and visceral mixture of Brechtian theatre, video diary, uh, and found footage, and and you know um, also like very very impressionistic abstract imagery. 
um, into these like really confounding, almost unclassifiable concoctions that I absolutely adore. I think he's the most interesting filmmaker working in Australia today. Uh, and also again, grossly underrated. Um, and in, in, internationally, I, um, am really interested in the work of, uh, Roberto Minervini, an Italian director working in the United States who has a somewhat similar um, sort of point on the compass in terms of the way he uh, traverses uh, this hybrid space or documentary drama um, uh, um, uh, methodology. Uh, I also love the work of Carlos Regatis, Philippe Grandieu, Claire Denis, um, a picture upon Winston Cole, um, and, you know, but then on the other side of the street, I absolutely adore um, you know, Will Farrell films and I'm a great admirer of Michael Mann and, you know, so I, I, it's certainly not just art cinema that I, that I, um, find myself drawn to. So, um, yeah, a, a, a wide range, wide range of, of work. Where is the film being shown at the moment? It's in multiple states, multiple venues. Uh, yeah, so right now we're, we're screening the film in Sydney at the Golden Age Cinema. With, uh, Michael Cody's up there running um, Q&A events. We've got a screening on the 27th with a Q&A moderated by Sarana Massacre, who's a wonderful film critic um, uh, based up in Sydney. And in Melbourne, I'm uh, running uh, yeah, the other Q&A screenings of Ruin the next two Saturdays, so the 26th of November and the 3rd of December. Uh, at Acme Cinemas, and uh, and then obviously we've got uh, a screening uh, organised by your fine self at the Mercury in Adelaide. Yeah, and we're we're very 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 excited. Um, I, I just want to ask about your uh, collaboration with Michael Cody. Uh, what what is the kind of delegation of roles? You've you've both t- uh, directed the film. Is there much overlap, or what are each of your strengths, and and how did you sort of complement each other? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. I, Michael Cody has a background, uh, very, very strong background in academia and as well as uh, several years spent as a foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia. And I think what Michael brings or brought to the, to the film was unbelievable uh, intellect and uh, extremely uh, rigorous interrogation of the underlying uh, themes of the film, as well as uh, really being amazingly uh, relentless in his desire to make sure that this work we were creating wasn't going to uh, somehow deteriorate into something that, you know, felt like a film created by two white middle class um, friends going to Cambodia, you know, so that was, um, whereas for me, uh, coming from a documentary background, I tend to dive in and uh, try to make my naivety of a place or of people a virtue of sorts and try to uh, retain a certain kind of conduit-like relationship with the, with the people I'm working with. So I think somehow um, those two uh, natural um, ways of working uh, seem to complement each other as I said earlier, like surprisingly well, it, it could have been really a total nightmare, but it was like a joy. 
Well, who, who had the coolest head? Because, I mean, you had uh, crazy stuff happen in this film and actors not turning up, uh, uh, you know, equipment, phones uh, stolen. Uh, uh, did, did you both have a cool head or did you kind of swap? One, one person would be relaxed and uh, uh, keep the situation stable. Like, how, how does that work? I think, I think at times, uh, I'm trying to think. Um, we actually managed to maintain really quite good humour throughout the whole process, even when things, you know, really, really, really uh, went more than astray, I suppose, you know, an actor turning up that you um, had specifically not cast because they just couldn't nail the scene and then being forced to because of the location you're in to then try to make that scene work. I mean, that's, you know, beyond frustrating and, and just... But I think... I think for the most part, the, the the mishaps or the hiccups that happened along the way uh, were kind of so absurd that we were able to find some kind of humour in them. I mean, uh, to give you an example, we were uh, filming in this extremely remote location because we were uh, basically with a phantom camera filming um, some homemade explosives being let off in a field, which comprised pretty much of a few coconuts filled with gunpowder. Um, and because of the, the, the explosion uh, sounds, even though we'd, we'd sought permission from the local police, we were filming quite late at night, and a local police officer decided to uh, arrive on his motorbike, very, very drunk, and uh, started waving a gun in our face, uh, demanding that he see our permit. We gave him our permit, and then he demanded for, uh, he demanded, yeah, money. So we, I think we ended up giving like $100 or something. Um, but, you know, you're dealing with those kind of um, slippages in terms of, um, I suppose, the you know, producerial um, end of the filmmaking process. Um, so I, I think, yeah, who who lost our uh, temper more easily? Look, I, I think we, I think neither of us did really. It was like because when things would go wrong, they would they would go so drastically wrong. They were kind of absurd. So I, I found them to be like you know erring on being uh, almost humorous, I suppose. And I think that also comes from working with friends and and just really, really, really enjoying the, the process. You know, like, it's so much fun working like this. And because you're working with a bunch of people that you trust and you love, um, it takes a lot to really... The, the one time that actually... This is... A, yeah, the one time that there was a, a huge conflict was uh, there was an issue with um, some of our van drivers were... Um, we found out had been uh, uh, not paying our cast. They were put in charge of um, giving our, our two lead cast their their daily per diems and wage, and and um, these van drivers had taken it upon themselves to to pocket this money and and to also um, not feed our cast properly because they were in charge of feeding the cast. And and I absolutely lost my temper at that. Um, and I think. Uh, yelled and yelled and yelled and fired the van drivers and um, then proceeded to apologise profusely to Mooney and Blaine because they'd been, you know, in effect half starved by they were being fed like gruel and also not being paid. So that that was that was deeply uh, distressing. That was the one time where I really, yeah, lost my cool. The 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 craziness of this production and that it was shot in Cambodia. Um, I can't help but be constantly reminded of uh, Apocalypse Now. I realise the film is on a completely different scale, um, but 
going in there without a completed script and uh, dealing with authorities and and all kinds of stuff was that ever a sort of uh, a reference point in conversation uh you know I, i'm sure you've seen hearts of darkness um is did you, did you ever kind of um uh think of that picture during the making of uh, ruin yeah look the 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 one time it was it was uh i suppose echoed most clearly was we were working with a Vietnam veteran, an American gentleman from Texas who operated, uh, operated a small micro light um, airplane tour business. And he, he'd offered for a very, very nominal sum to uh, take a flight uh, up and down uh, this particular stretch of river at sunset um, with two cameras strapped to, the, to the, his micro light um, airplane. And uh, he turned up on the day we were strapping out, you know, our two only cameras to this, to this, um, micro light. And I think he'd drunk, was it, I think, yeah, we found out he'd drunk at least like a bottle of scotch and, um, we had 20 minutes to get this scene and, uh, there was something about him. He was like, as ridiculous as the situation was, we, we let him go up in the air because he convinced us that he was, he knew what he was doing. Um, but he just at that moment had this like great court jester quality that reminded me almost exactly of uh, Dennis Hopper's photojournalist character at the end of Apocalypse Now. So that was probably the closest like, you know, um, nudge to that film. But yeah, look, I mean, our, our entire budget would have been the catering budget on a day um, <laughs> of Apocalypse Now. So um, yeah, a scale that, uh, yeah, is just so incomparable. Um, it's sort of insane, but, um, um, certainly the same, the same heat, definitely the same temperature. I mean, going into a, uh, such an ambitious film like this with $8,000, I mean, uh, there's a lot of short films in this country that cost much more than that. Uh, I, I'm so interested when you say that there's no excuses anymore, um, to, to not make films. So I just... What wondered uh, if, if if you could just elaborate on that uh, no excuses a little more because I, I find that quite uh, inspiring that you know maybe we're tricked in this country that we need government funding because in America there is no government funding people just sort of do it or they find um, finance uh, how, how do you find the difference between Australian filmmaking and 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 other filmmaking around the world like what's the cultural difference there Yeah, look, I, I've spent probably half um, of the last couple of years in the United States working on a couple of projects and have met literally dozens of really unbelievably inspiring and hardworking filmmakers over there. And as you say, because there is a, as a, a very uh, distinct lack of government subsidies for those filmmaking communities, there is an, a really beautiful uh, and healthy sense of community between um, directors, producers, cinematographers, in which people just help each other make work, and there's there's also no blurring of the lines between this false sense of a potential commercial outcome. People know that they're making art. They know they're making art with friends, and as a result, they try to do it as much as they possibly can because it's enjoyable to make art with friends. So you get filmmakers like Nathan Silver making at least a feature film per year. Um, you get filmmakers that are far more prolific than the filmmakers. Um, although, you know, Ivan Sen is, is, is definitely like, he's making a lot right now. It's great. Um, and 
and it's just it's and it's also fine to see that you know not every one of those films is necessarily amazing it's it's like filmmakers who are using their medium um, to explore and to take risks and then to also to fail um, that's also hugely important and I think you know you make a film every five six seven years um, the pressure on that film to be both commercially successful and artistically you know a huge a quantum leap for you as an artist I'm much more interested in in uh, the sketches between those you know the the larger opus I suppose thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today I, I can't wait to see the film it's showing in Adelaide uh, this Friday 7 p.m the 25th of November uh, at the Mercury cinema and I wish you the best with the um, rest of the rollout nationally Thank you so much. It's really an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you and, and yeah, I really look forward to hearing how the film's received in Adelaide. Thanks again.